Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for the gift of your grace. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the gift of the church that you have created and are building a temple whose foundation and cornerstone is Christ. And that in him, we are being drawn together, knit together, to display the beauty of Jesus to a dying world. And we pray that we do that faithfully. We ask that your spirit be here this morning as we go through this next little section in Acts. We pray that you would do what only you can do in our hearts, which is to stir up a renewed boldness, a renewed commitment to be who we are in Christ. We thank you for these things. In Jesus' name, amen. We are in Acts 4, verse 23. And last week, we discussed the jujitsu that Peter pulled on the Sanhedrin when they interrogated uh, he and John. Uh, there was a, a healing that happened on the temple complex. There was uh, a, an investigation that was conducted by the Jewish leaders of Sanhedrin. And they ask one question, by what name do you do these things? And Peter responds, instead of on the defense, with the offense, the gospel, right? He goes right into, you killed the Lord of glory, you killed the author of life. He does this whole thing and preaches the resurrection of Jesus to the Jewish leaders. What could they have done right then, at that moment, to shut the thing down? Okay, there's that. <laughs> Would that have shut the thing down? They do kill them. Did that shut the thing down? Here's the body. Right? Here's the body. They couldn't do it. And so, when you are faced with a, um, a problem like, oops, the man who claimed to be God and we killed is now being testified to being resurrected. Oops. So they do the logical thing. Rather than repent, which is what Peter and John were calling them to do, they warn them not to teach anymore in this name. Is that logical? I mean, does that make sense to you? That they would move toward shutting it down or trying to shut it down through intimidation rather than just saying we were wrong? Why not just say we were wrong? Why not repent? Tons of money. There's money involved. There's power involved. There's pride involved. All right. In our passage today, we're going to be given a glimpse into the common life of the Christian community again. We saw one earlier in chapter 2, and, and we're going to see uh, just a, a quick glimpse today. I'm just going to do the first part of that. The next part of that we'll do next week. But let's look at chapter 4 and start in verse 23. When they were released... They went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth 
and the sea and everything in them. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while, stretch, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. All right, when we're looking at the Christian community, Luke first shows what? What's the big context that he initially shows the Christian community? What are they doing? They're gathering together. They're gathering together and doing what? They're praying. And we've talked about it before. We'll talk about it again and again and again. This is a common theme in Acts that the church gets together and they pray. They're serious about it. They really do it. Um, what did, who did Peter and John return to? In, in verse 23, who did it say he returns to? They're friends. What does that mean? The local church body. The local church body. Some have argued that they return to the other apostles. Uh, and others say the community itself. They would say they return to the other apostles. Well, I mean, it's kind of ambiguous. So there's, there's an argument for both sides. But... The point that I, that I think we should draw from it, though, is that it's a bigger audience than just the apostles, right? <clears throat> Who's, who are the bold witnesses? Is it just the apostles? Just the apostles tasked with this? No, thank you. Good grief. Um, it's okay to speak? <laughs> um, it's not just the apostles. The whole community is involved in spreading the news of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. We're about to come on two of those witnesses here in, in future chapters, right? We're looking at Stephen and Philip very shortly. Not apostles, but very bold. And so the idea here is that the community is gathering together to pray. It's the they, and they lifted their voices. This isn't just Peter's, this isn't a Peter prayer. This is the community praying. All of them praying this together. Um, it's the community that responds to the report by Peter and John, and they respond by praying. And here we have one of the rare examples giving the actual wording of the prayer of the church. How do they address God? What do they call Him? What do they start with? Sovereign Lord. Have we heard that before? Yeah? Where? The Old Testament title. Old Testament title. Exactly right. 
25 times in the Greek Old Testament, you see this term being used of God. In the New Testament, it's only three times, and this is one of those times. There are three additional times where it's specifically applied to Christ as sovereign Lord. Uh, there's some debate about why it was used less frequently in the New Testament, and, and some believe that the New Testament writers at that time were a little concerned about that term having morphed into uh, the use of, a, of a, a, like a, a dictator kind of you know, harsh thing or whatever. So they didn't use it as much. But for whatever reason, it is used of God here. Why do you think they'd start there in, in this prayer? Why would they start there? Remind themselves of who they're following. In contrast to what? Yes, but in contrast to what? The priests aren't sovereign. The Rome is not sovereign. God is sovereign. And so they start with the only authority that matters, His. Right? What else do they say? How else do they refer to God? Go back to the beginning. They live on this creator. They recognize him as creator. Why why that? Why recognize him as creator? Why not comforter? Go back to back to sovereignty. Goes back to sovereignty. If he's creator, he's sovereign over it, and what implication does that have over all the players involved? It's his world, not theirs. If he's creator, and again, this is Old Testament language that they're pulling from. What are the odds? Uh, Old Testament language they're pulling from that he is creator. In fact, we see this in, uh, in the Psalms a lot. Um, Psalm 124.8, Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Uh, some have argued that some of this language finds its roots in Psalm 146.6. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever. If God is creator, he created the Sanhedrin. Right? And by being creatures, there's duty to the creator. And so they, the Sanhedrin, are in rebellion against their creator. And so they recognize that God is creator um, and are, are asking him for help uh, here. We'll get to that in a second. What, what is the, what is the, where do they go next? What are they quoting here? Do you recognize this language? Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? Do you know where that's from? Psalm 2. Psalm 2. That's, he, there, he's actually uh, doing an um, exact quote from the Septuagint, which is a Greek Old Testament. He says Gentiles there in our translation is why do the nations rage? We, we see that. But, but here it's Gentiles. Early on in the church, this psalm was very, um, they, they viewed it very uh, uh, messianic, with, obviously. I mean, you see it here. And it's prophetic. With each of the elements really displaying what happened in the Passion of Christ. Uh, the details of verses 1 and 2 in Psalm 2 are applicable to the Passion. They viewed it rightly as prophetic. You have raging nations, or the Gentiles raging, 
Those are the Gentile rulers and the, and the soldiers who mocked, beat, and executed Jesus. Who are the peoples? They sort of identify them later in the prayer, don't they? Usually you hear the people of Israel. This prayer, they say the peoples of Israel. They're tagging the language of Psalm 2. So you, you have the peoples being the people of Israel. You have the kings represented in Herod. You have the rulers uh, represented in Pilate. And, of course, the anointed of God being Christ. And so all of these elements in Psalm 2 are working together in their prayer. Why... Why is all the plotting against Christ in vain? What do they say? He was raised from the dead. Okay. All the plotting was a part of God's plan anyway. It's all a part of his plan. So what does that tell you? He makes even his enemies work his plan. Right? In their own desires, in their own efforts to thwart his plan, it actually works to his plan. And we see that most clearly in the crucifixion. And resurrection. God has already predetermined the outcome. He's the author of the story. And if he's the author of the story, we're the characters in his story. And the cool thing is, in Christ, he steps into the story. And all the plotting and all the raging of humanity, throughout all of that, God's purposes still prevail. They did in Jesus. They did with the apostles and the Sanhedrin, and they continue to prevail to this very day. Why would, why would they go here? What, what, what are they looking at? What's going to happen? Looking They're looking at persecution. Some have said that this prayer by the, by the, the church in this, in this section is very similar to the prayer of Hezekiah. Um, in uh, in Second Kings, uh, and also in Isaiah uh, sixteen uh, thirty-seven sixteen, in that prayer of Hezekiah, you know the the Assyrian ruler Shnakarib is coming to against Jerusalem. He makes all these threats. He's gonna you know whatever, and Hezekiah uh, doesn't immediately sue for terms of peace. Uh, he goes, shuts his door, and he prays. And the same kinds of elements of Hezekiah's prayer are, are what we see in the church's prayer. Sovereign Lord, creator of heaven and earth, threats against Israel, then a petition at the end. What's the difference, though? Let, let's see. Let me see if I can. The difference between Hezekiah's prayer and the church's prayer here. It's in Isaiah 37, uh, verse 16. Yeah. O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you, are, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Sovereign Lord, Creator. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear... Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Hear all the words of Shnacharib, which he has sent to mock the living God. Threats against Israel. Threats against God's people. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Syria have laid waste all the nations and their lands, and have cast their gods into the fire. For they were no gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. 
therefore they were destroyed. So now, O Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are the Lord. Sovereign Lord, Creator, threats against the people of God, petition. Very similar to the prayer of the church. What's the difference? The petition. The petition. What is Hezekiah asking for? Save us. Deliver us, right? Save us. What is the church asking for? Boldness. Boldness. Boldness and witness. Now, is boldness going to save them? <laughs> boldness is not going to get them out of the fire. Boldness is actually going to stoke the fire. Are the signs that they ask for through the name of Jesus, are they, are they going to get them out of persecution? Are, is that going to deliver them? Opposite. No, the exact opposite. We see this with the healing of the lame beggar. It didn't make their life easier. It made it more difficult. And yet, they don't ask for deliverance from their circumstances. They ask for boldness and faithfulness and courage to do what they're called to do, which is to be a witness for Christ. Doesn't that strike you as counterhuman? Don't we kind of live in a land of self-preservation? They're not praying, praying for self-preservation here. They want to be faithful. They knew that the persecution wasn't going to stop. What's the language? Look at 29 and, and 30. What's the language that they use? Slave language. They're owned. Bond servant language. That's exactly right. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants, your slaves to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. What signs and wonders? Are they looking for power over their enemies here? Well, yes and no. I mean, they're, they're looking for a demonstration of the power of Christ to wrench the world from the hands of Satan, certainly, but... Uh, the signs and wonders were not to, you know, strike the Sanhedrin blind or melt the noses on their face or whatever they wanted to do. They are asking for signs to do what? Sorry, there's a Raiders of the Lost Ark reference there. What are they looking for the signs to do? To show others who Christ is. To confirm the message, right? To show who Jesus is. Speak the word of God. Confirm the scriptures. To confirm the message that they're talking about. All right. The signs actually are going to put them in danger. Uh, they knew what the result would be, more persecution. But they have hope in the authority God has given his Messiah. Paul uh, would later speak of, of that hope like this in 1 Corinthians 15, 24. <laughs> then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So does God respond? Does God respond? How? 
He sends the spirit, and what happens? The place gets shaken. Now that's kind of weird. What's going on there? Okay, so two things confirm the prayer, right? There's this physical thing that goes on with the shaking house, and that's either thunder or earthquake. We're not really sure what it was, but something happened that confirmed the presence of God there. But the more sure answer to prayer is what? They actually did it. They're speaking with boldness. It's an actual confirmation because they're actually doing it. Um, they, speak, they spoke the word with boldness. Incidentally, this is not a second Pentecost going on here. They had already been baptized with Spirit. This is more of a feeling, kind of refreshing thing, a fresh feeling for courage, but not a fresh baptism. That, that, happens, that happened once. All right. So there it is. They immediately go to God in prayer when they're faced with this massive opposition. Do you pray with hope? Do we pray as if God really is sovereign Lord? Is He really creator? Do we pray like those things mean something? Um, can we? Should we? <laughs> Do we? It's very interesting to me, the phenomenon in the church that's, that's, uh, that's happened in, in really recent centuries, uh, decades, I guess. Just this failure to really understand that this is where, this is the lifeblood of the church, is prayer. It's where we need to be. Uh, Paul uh, brings out several points about prayer. And we, we talked about prayer before, but in 2 Corinthians uh, 1.11, Paul asked the Corinthians, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So what's the purpose of prayer? What is the purpose is Paul, what's the purpose that Paul pulls out there? Quiet this morning. Okay, you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So, what's the, what's the purpose? Usually it follows the so that. God's glory. Increase thanksgiving. Increase thanksgiving. Okay, so there's an increase in thanksgiving to God. Is that in one person or many people? We're looking at everybody, right? We want to see an increase in thanksgiving in prayer. The purpose is the thanks of many. Our dependence upon our sovereign Lord is a testimony to his character and power to fulfill the petitions of our prayers. We can trust Him to hear us. There's some great language in Ephesians 2 about prayer. For through Him, we both, Gentiles and Jews, have access in one spirit to the Father. That's Trinitarian language. In prayer. 
And we've talked about this before in our previous discussions, that the triune God is at work in the theater of our hearts when we pray. Uh, Paul also talks about prayer this way. He says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Do you see a theme? Thanksgiving. What's the opposite of Thanksgiving? What's the opposite of it? Complaining? Okay. Discontent? What else? Selfishness? Bitterness, maybe? Why am I put in this place? Self-exaltation. Because if you're thankful, that means that you're giving credit to God for giving it. But if you're not, that means it's in essence saying that you did yourself. So there is, a, there is a dependence that's shown in thanksgiving versus a, a selfishness or a self-exaltation in the opposite of thanksgiving. We can take our anxious thoughts and leave them at the feet of Jesus. How do you feel, how do you deal with fear and anxiety? How do you address that in your own heart? What is, what is Paul saying here? When we're getting all tight about things like going on in the culture we're getting all tied about things that may be going on personally um, how do we deal with our anxiety can you be anxious when your heart is full of thankfulness is that natural in an environment like we have today no. Lord, look on the craziness and remember us. We are thankful that you are sovereign Lord, not the two-party tickets. <laughs> Thankfulness. In any situation. This is the will of God, by the way, Paul says, your thankfulness. And that's not something you can manufacture. That's a spirit thing. And we have to be at the feet of Christ praying, Lord, make me thankful. Could these Christians have been bitter? Here. Great. Now the Sanhedrin are against us. Way to go, Peter. <laughs> Did us a solid there, bub. Thanks. What, what is, could they have been bitter? Of course they could have. They were thankful, though, for the opportunity to endure hardship for Christ. Will we be? Um, in church history, in the first three centuries, you see this ebb and flow of massive persecution going on. And there was a period there for about 40 years where it was relatively peaceful. Great toleration given in the true sense of the word to Christians. They weren't... Uh, immediately thrown into prison just for simply being Christians. So about 40 years, there was some calm, there was some stability. And then uh, there was an emperor that rose to power named Decius. And he was furious. And he instigated an empire-wide persecution of Christians. Empire-wide, it's the first time it had happened. And in response to, I mean, there's a whole generation that grown up in peace. In response to that, there were massive apostasies 
in Carthage, Alexandria, those places. Massive apostasies. And once the persecution subsided, there was a real struggle in the church. Do we let these guys who, who denied Christ to save their skins come back in? How do we do that? I mean, you've got guys in the church who are missing arms, missing eyes, scars from beatings and, and whippings and all kinds of stuff, still there thinking these guys escaped all that. And yet now they want to come back in. That happened after just 40 years of relative peace. We've had how many? 350? So are you saying we're not guaranteed health, wealth, and prosperity? I am. I'm not just... Um, no. That, that is exactly what I'm saying, is that we are not guaranteed those things. Um, what is it that the Shia Lin says? If, you're, if you've got your best life now, you're headed for hell. Is that the... Um, all right. I think we should be in prayer very seriously about these things. Get your heart ready. Uh, all right. It, it, Hebrews 5, 7. In the days of, and this, this will go to your point, Grant. In the days of his flesh, Jesus, Hebrews 5, 7. Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Does that verse not strike you as really odd? Jesus calling out to God, the Son of God, calling out to Him because He knew God was able to save Him from death. And the author of Hebrews, Apollos, says, and He heard Him because of His reverence. He heard Him. He still died. And yet it says God heard Him because of His reverence. What does that mean? How, what reverence? He's pleading, let this cup pass. How is that heard? <clears throat> Thoughts? How he said, thy will be done. He did. I pray for God's will to be done. Your will be done, he said. So what's the reverence in play there? Obedience. He obeyed him, even unto death. He obeyed him. He was content with whatever God decided. God heard him, but he may not answer our prayers the way we think they should be on the ground, I think is, is the point there. Right. We sometimes, we sometimes go, well, that was Jesus, and of course he could be obedient, and we downplay the fact that he was fully man mm -hmm. and fully God, and that the temptations were real, yeah. and the struggles were real for him. I, th I think we, we downplay that. And, and that's really cheating his sacrifice mm -hmm. and his perfect life yeah. if, if we don't recognize that he really did have to struggle and his prayers were real prayers. Yeah. And they were really heard. And they were really answered. Just not in the way that we would think that they should be. He heard him. Um, when we pray, Using the, the example of Jesus, we come humbly knowing that God hears our prayers even though he may answer them differently than we see on the ground. All right, 1 Peter 4, 7 says this. The end of all things is at hand. 
Now think about that as we go into the next service. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. It's hard to pray when we're steeped in sin. There's an old proverb by John Owen that, that I think I should turn into some kind of plaque and put on my wall somewhere. Um, be killing sin or it will be killing you. If prayer is the lifeblood of the church, and we don't do it because we know when we pray we're faced with the deficiencies in our own heart, it kills us. Not just individually, but it's the lifeblood of our community. If we're going to do this thing well, we have to be people of prayer. And that is the example that we see again and again and again in the early church. <coughs> and we can trust Him. We can trust Him. What, um, any comments you have? We're running up on 10 o'clock. <clears throat> Actually, we've run over 10 o'clock. I think in our nation, uh, it's, it's hard to pray because that is counterintuitive to who we are as people. And it's counterintuitive to being American. Because Americans, we lift ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We don't have a king that we subjugate ourselves to. We uh, can have opportunity and uh, prosperity, and we're the greatest nation on the planet, and all these kinds of things that feed our pride. <coughs> in direct opposition to the humility that it takes to pray. Right. Right. And so that's, that's difficult. We're not, uh, we're not geared toward being humble as Americans, as humans. I mean, none of us really are. But we especially um, thump our chest here in the West. Any, anything else? I think yeah. looking at their prayer, everything they pray is God's will-centered. Mm. And, and when I think about my prayers, they're not always that. Um, so anyway, it's just a, I think, a conviction to, to, uh, they confirm God's character and then they're, they're praying his will. They're, um, in a very similar way that Jesus taught mm -hmm. the disciples to pray mm -hmm. in the Lord's prayer. Yeah. His will, not theirs. There's a, but there's a, yeah, like we talked about before, there's a, there's not a prayer for deliverance here. There's a prayer for faithfulness. At whatever the cost. So, yeah. All right. Well, with that in mind, let's pray. Father, the more we read um, this book, the more we're confronted with the idea that being called into the body of Christ is not a flippant thing. There's great joy in Jesus, but you've called us to be sober-minded and self-controlled. That our um, focus in life, taking on his name, is one of a slave would you by your spirit work on our hearts to lay down the pride that we cling to to be the means of our own deliverance 
Would you make us people of prayer dependent upon you, recognizing that you are sovereign Lord, that you are creator of heaven and earth, and that we owe you everything because of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ? Would you drive us to our knees? I thank you for this church. I thank you for this group. I thank you that they love you and they want to serve you. I pray that you continue to draw them in to stir up in their hearts the beauty of Jesus and the desirability of Him above all things. I pray that you be with us in the next service. Give Philip the words to speak, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.